We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we're pleased to be joined by David McGuire, Executive Director of the ACLU of Connecticut. Good morning to you, sir. Thanks for having me. Thursday, the Criminal Justice Commission tapped Richard Colangelo, the longtime prosecutor in Stamford, to be Connecticut's next chief state's attorney. This is a process the ACLU has been watching closely. How do you feel about the pick? Uh, We feel really good about the process and hopeful that Attorney Colangelo will be a meaningful and receptive partner in criminal justice reform moving forward. I'm proud to say that our campaign for smart justice, which is a campaign that's a little over a year old and is grounded in the belief that people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And as that, we have a lot of justice impacted people, meaning people that have themselves been involved in our criminal justice system here in Connecticut advocating. Um, We took to the legislature last session and pushed hard for a bill to change the way the chief state's attorney and other state's attorneys are appointed. Um, And the hearing that you saw this past Thursday was example of that. It was held in public at the legislative office building. It was on CTN, Connecticut's TV network. And the public had an opportunity to weigh in with comments. And we believe that all of those attributes contributed to a much more democratic process. And we're looking forward to working with Attorney Colangelo. How do you feel about what Attorney Colangelo said at that hearing? You know, it's a mixed bag. So we went into that search process by coming up with a survey, which essentially requested position statements and pledges from all the candidates. We um, were successful in getting all four of the finalists to complete our pledge, and each candidate had some highlights and lowlights. There's definitely some some progressive-type sounds coming from the candidates, including Attorney Colangelo, but also some areas that there's going to need to be a lot of work and reform. Um, so we were we were happy with some of what he had to say. Uh, you know, realistically, Kevin Kane was a uh, state's attorney from another generation. Kevin Kane had worked for the Division of Criminal Justice since the 60s. He had been chief state's attorney for a long while. Um, and although he did soften somewhat on the en- ending of mass incarceration push that we're making, um, we're looking forward to someone with a bit more of a fresh perspective. Going back to the, the process here, this was basically in a public job interview and something that hasn't happened for this position before in Connecticut. That's right. And I want to give great cre- credit to the Criminal Justice Commission and their chair, Justice McDonald, in making sure that it was as robust of a public process as possible. So the hearing yesterday, the interviews and the public hearing were mandated by statute, but they had previously in the year had a general meeting and opened the mic to the public to hear what advocacy groups and legal professionals wanted in the next chief state's attorney. That was not mandated by law. But again, I think opened the door and showed a real openness to the commission hearing from folks. The other piece that was greatly different than the past is that there is now 
a justice-impacted person on the Criminal Justice Commission. So this is a commission of six appointed by the governor, confirmed by the legislature. Smart Justice, again, pushed Governor Lamont very, very hard on the campaign trail to pledge to put someone that was formerly incarcerated on the Criminal Justice Commission. He did so. Um, it's attorney Dwayne Betts, who many people have heard of. He, he went to Yale Law School, um, and he is a nationally renowned poet. He asked some amazingly impactful questions yesterday and changed the dynamic. So overall, we're, we're feeling really good about the process. There's a lot to be done here. We still have some of the worst racial disparities in the country here in Connecticut. We've had a big prison population drop, but those disparities have really not lessened. So we're going to try to partner with Attorney Colangelo, and we'll apply pressure as necessary to get the momentum we need to fix this problem here in Connecticut. Specifically, what sorts of changes are you still looking for in the criminal justice division? Well, you know, the, the chief state's attorney is an interesting role. This is not a lawyer that litigates cases. This is really an administrator and public-facing front of the Division of Criminal Justice. Um, they are the ones in the legislature, that, that person who is often either opposing or supporting a multitude of issues. Um, Kevin Kane was for a very long time, we had have many battles at the legislature together, was very much opposed to meaningful changes to the system. He felt like it worked well and that his professionals were doing their job to the best of their ability. Um, we've continually pushed on that over the last you know decade or so, really, but even before Smart Justice was formed. Um, we're going to push the pros top, top prosecutor, Attorney Colangelo, to not only be open-minded on the direct direct issues that he has to deal with, but also broader issues like reentry issues. Um, there's clearly recidivism, for example, has a huge impact on his office and their, their workload and, and public safety. So we're going to push that office to do more and weigh in on more issues and also engage with the public in a more meaningful way. I think that's an area that the Division of Criminal Justice can do better by just letting the public know what they're doing, why they're doing it, and then also hearing what the public wants. In some states, prosecutors are elected. In Connecticut, they are not. Does the ACLU see that as a plus or a minus? Well, it can be either. So we're one of three states that appoint prosecutors. Um, there is something to be said for removing the political nature from that office. Um, we really don't want prosecutors making decisions on cases, thinking about, oh, my election is next November. It's the same thing with judges. There's, there's a real downside in having them have to worry about getting reelected. On the flip side, there's not meaningful Democratic input and control over who's in that office. Um, as there was before this most recent iteration of the Criminal Justice Commission. These these folks, the state's attorneys serve a eight-year term and the chief state's attorney serves a five-year term. Um, we're going to be advocating for some check-ins in between. Um, we Part of the bill last year that became a law that now requires the hearings to be in public for those interviews and decisions also required the collection of a lot of data by prosecutors. Um, before this last year, and still right now, but they're working on it, Prosecutors are one of the only agencies still operating on paper. So they literally go into court with a plastic bin full of manila, manila folders. That's how they do their business. And as such, they're not really able to see the overall scope and impact of their work. We're going to be transitioning as a state to having them be electronic and submit their data to the Criminal Justice Commission, who can hopefully use it to make more informed decisions about prosecutors and ultimately, in our in our hopes, evaluate them with a data-driven model. So we're, we're hoping that every other year, 
state's attorneys would go before the CJC and have a review process. And that way, in between their eight-year terms, they can have some heads up on what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. And the public also could weigh in with a public hearing. The chief state's attorney can only do so much within the framework of laws on the books. So with the legislative session starting this coming Wednesday, what's on your wish list this year? Well, that that's a great question. So one of the things is to memorialize um, what I just spoke about, finding ways not only to collect data for data's sake, but use it. So empower the CJC to use this data and to make recommendations about actions of the chief state's attorney and the state's attorneys based on that data. Um, we're also going back and trying to create an anti-discrimination protection for people with a criminal record who are discriminated based on that criminal record. Uh, we know that the collateral consequences of a criminal record are far-ranging. There's over 600 legal and policy, legal and regulatory barriers to people coming back from being incarcerated. Um, there is right now a task force, which it's a council on collateral consequences of a criminal record, set to give the recommendations next month. And we're hoping that those spark a meaningful conversation about that, which we fully expect the chief state's attorney to weigh in on because it directly impacts their workload as well. One of the other changes that you've talked about is in the area of police-justified use of deadly force. We saw three officer-involved shootings, all fatal in January, in Ansonia, West Haven, and Waterbury. The ACLU wants to change the standard for justified use of deadly force by police officers. What is it now, and what do you feel it should be? Absolutely. So th this is a, a real pandemic in our state. We've had um, just uh, 24 killings per at the hands of police per public reporting. Uh, since the year 2013. That's just what we know by media accounts. The number may well be higher. Um, we believe that the standard needs to be changed. Right now, the standard that prosecutors ultimately use to judge whether uh, use of deadly force was justified looks at just the moment where the officer uses that deadly force. And at that moment, if the officer fears for his or her safety or the public's, they're justified to use that. We think that that is way too narrow of an approach to it. It is really not recognizing the entire situation. So what we're going to advocate for is that the standard be adjusted to take into account the entire situation from the start of the interaction to the use of that deadly force, and that officers be mandated specifically to use the least amount of force necessary to resolve the conflict. Um, right now, they can go directly to the gun at that moment, and it is considered a justified use of force. We think that these changes are necessary to create meaningful consequences if police use force unjustifiably. Because right now, it is essentially unheard of for police officers to be held accountable criminally for misusing force. Uh, and that that is something that we think really needs to be addressed here. In the, in the past, um, per the Division of Criminal Justice's website, they've done 73 investigations into serious police misconduct. Only two of those have found that the officer did use force in an unjustifiable way. One was in a 2005 shooting where ultimately the officer was acquitted. And then the other was a shooting last year, if you remember, in New Haven, where a Hamden police officer um, shot uh, at a car and it created a big upheaval at, at, the, at the Yale Law School, but also in the New Haven community. And ultimately, the Pat Griffin, the state's attorney in New Haven, did charge that officer 
Um, that is still a pending case, but we think there needs to be a radical change to the standard so that it adjusts both practices on the ground, but also consequences if police use force unjustifiably. I suspect police officers might say, well, you know, we're put in very difficult situations where we have to make life or death split second decisions and we're going to err on the, the side of officer safety and public safety. So we're not we're not um, putting that down. We think that is a real situation. Officers do very dangerous jobs and these are split second decisions and it, they have to be t- evaluated on a case by case basis. That said, um, the first two of these shootings that we saw this year demonstrated through the body camera footage how de-escalation could have been taken better, could have been done better. So essentially the, the, the first shooting, the one in Ansonia, um, the video shows very clearly they, they knew this person had um, some mental health issues. This person had a knife, but this person was in their home. Uh, there was no one else in the home. And the video shows them basically breaking down the front door. And then the person ran into their bedroom. And then again, was very confrontational. The police were very aggressive and broke down the second door and then ultimately prompted a, a very close encounter where they killed the person. Um, we believe that through proper channels, they could have evaluated and, and understood this person is in a mental health crisis and maybe they could have stepped back and created a safe perimeter, for example, or talked through the situation. Um, so we think, for example, in that case, the prosecutor should now be looking at the entire circumstance when in reality, under the current standard, they will look just at that last moment where they had essentially forced this person into a close encounter and killed that person. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to David McGuire, executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut. One of the other changes you have talked about is who actually investigates these cases. It used to be the state's attorney. Mm -hmm. Then it changed to the state's attorney from another jurisdiction, not where the shooting occurred. And you feel it might be good to go even a step further removed. We do. So um, back a handful of years ago, the legislature passed, again, after another uh, awful police shooting, uh, an act concerning the use of excessive force. This was a large bill. It had a big body camera provision, which paid for the the acquisition of body cameras by any state police uh, or municipal force, um, as well as a first-year storage. But another piece was that it as you mentioned, farmed out the investigation to an out-of-jurisdiction prosecutor on the understanding that there is conflict there. Those officers work with those prosecutors in their daily business, so we were trying to make it less of a direct conflict. Um, Since then, we've seen that that really hasn't had um, either the practical benefit of uh, more more meaningful and fair investigations, but also the public uh, doesn't perceive the process as being fair. And in the realm of law enforcement, you have to think about procedural justice. Do the people that are interacting with the government, in this case with the state's attorney's office, feel like the process is fair? And overwhelmingly, communities are saying they don't think it is. Um, So what we're going to be proposing in some form or another is that there be a special prosecutor, a prosecutor that's appointed, that has statewide jurisdiction, that essentially does just these investigations, that they don't do the traditional cases um, they stick to just police use of force investigations where there's serious harm to a person. And I do think this is the first step towards, you know, real accountability and, again, winning back the public's trust. At the end of the day, this all impacts public safety because if people don't believe the police are fair or going to treat them right, they're going to be weary of the police, not report crimes, um, flee. And this is something that no one wants. 
in the case last month of the police-involved shooting in, in West Haven, which resulted in the, the death of Mubarak Suleiman of, of New Haven, the ACLU alleged that a state trooper responding to the scene used a racial slur. State police insist it was not a slur but a comment about a mirror on a vehicle and that they are owned an apology. Are they? Well, you know, it's unfortunate that this has become a uh, a headline because it's distracting from the real topic that that young man was shot several times and died, we believe unnecessarily, and that there's a larger issue with police violence in the state. Um, we did hear that on that body camera. Other folks heard it as well. And, you know, really, th at this point, we should move on and address the underlying problem of police violence and not squabble about something like that. Do you think it was a mistake to initially point that out? No, I don't, because other people, in including people directly involved in the situation, thought that was said as well. Um, we have a situation here in Connecticut where um, there have been other incidents where there's definitely racial animus involved in policing, and it's something that needs to be addressed and rooted out. Again, I think the real issue here, which ought to be focused on, is the police violence that uh, ultimately that situation resulted in. It's important to scale back and know that in that chase, the Norwalk Police Department decided that it was not worth continuing the chase, that it was going to jeopardize public safety. They backed off the chase and the state police took it on and aggressively you know, cornered that young man. And the footage is deeply, deeply challenging and frustrating and sad to see, regardless of that comment. We are seeing footage of these incidents in near real time now, thanks to a new law. Yes. So there was a law passed last year, which was not a police accountability law, but was a meaningful police transparency law that requires the footage from these types of incidents to be released to the public within 96 hours. Uh, this is a huge improvement because we first fought for the, the body cameras to be brought onto departments, but then in many cases, we're seeing that the departments were not releasing them. Or in some cases, the state's attorney was telling the prosecutors they could not release them because they were part of an active investigation. At the end of the day, we know that these are uh, tools of transparency that are paid for with public dollars, which are meant to let the public get in, uh, some insight into these unfortunate incidents. Um, we're seeing that these, these sometimes very hard to watch videos are giving families and community members some basis to figure out whether in fact a shooting was justified or not. Um, so there, it's important that they're out there. Um, unfortunately, the Waterbury Police Department, the third department that, that killed someone this year, does not have body cameras. And back in 2017, there was, a, in our mind, an unlawful shooting of a young man. was not fatal, but caused severe injury, um, where we called out on the Waterbury Police Department to, in fact, acquire those body cameras, which, again, there is still money in that publicly uh, accessible fund to pay for. Um, unfortunately, since that time, they have not brought them on. And that third shooting, there's a lot of opaqueness, and it, it's a problem. Moving on to the issue of tolls, it's still working its way through the, the General Assembly. And whether or not you are in favor or against tolls, the way they would be put up in Connecticut would be electronically, which means they're going to be collecting information on, on vehicles that pass under the gantries. What sort of protections does the ACLU feel need to be in place when it comes to collecting and storing that information? So we don't take a position on tolls as a general policy matter. But as you said, uh, we know that there will be lots of these gantries all over our state highways. We live in a state where it is 
impossible or impractical to get from one side to the other without going on highways and through some of these tolls. Um, these tolls will very precisely log when a car drives through them and where that was. And in the aggregate, this can give the state a very, very detailed dossier, a digital dossier on where someone has driven. Uh, so we think it's important that privacy safeguards be baked into whatever proposal does ultimately get considered. Uh, what what we believe is that the data should be kept for hours or days, not months or years. Uh, a lot of other states keep this data for up to five years. That's a lot of data. Um, and it's not necessary for billing. You know, there, there is a certain window that the the info needs to be taken to both bill the customer, then also if an appeal is filed, be able to access that. Um, so we are working with legislators and the governor's office on trying to make sure that it's done in an ethical way that does not create a data source that could be misused. Are there some jurisdictions that actually use this this data for, for other purposes? I, I imagine a lot of entities would like to get their hands on it and, and find out about you know travel patterns and things like that. Yeah, so um, we are very concerned about mission creep. The idea you collect it for one purpose and use it for another. It's very, very commercially valuable data because they know, for example, who that plate is registered to, their demographics and things of that nature. Um, so unfortunately, other states have not done a good job on this. They've, they really, there are not really good privacy safeguards in other states. That's one of the questions legislators ask me, who should we be modeling off? Um, we have a unique opportunity here in Connecticut to do it right. We're creating this system from scratch, and there's no reason to jump into this issue without really working through this this really very particular problem around privacy. Um, I've been encouraged in terms of some of the conversations that we've had um, around this. So I, I'm hopeful that the state will strike the right balance on this and not essentially uh, sell people's privacy for profit. Now, with the debate on tolls on the front burner, red light cameras have kind of moved to the back burner. But a number of years back, that was all the rage in Connecticut. Uh, does the ACLU have a position on red light cams? We do. We're, we're adamantly opposed to red light cameras on a number of different grounds. One is on a due process ground. I mean, when you get pulled over by a police officer, it's right after your alleged violation. It's clear in your mind. You're able to articulate whether or not that happened. Whereas with red light cameras, you're often getting a summons some weeks later from a in many cases, a private corporation whose goal is to make profit. Uh, that's not right. That is a huge fairness and due process problem. The other piece is that the cameras are almost uh, always put in ur dense urban centers and unfairly target black and brown people, which is something that we take real issue with. Um, and then the last part is a, is a, a, a privacy one. Um, these cameras do also capture sensitive information. It's actually not the primary problem, but they can be used in such a way. The other piece is that a lot of times um, we're worried about, like like you had said, mission creep, this this information going on to another level. So there are lots of ways that, that surveillance is getting out of control. And the more cameras and systems you have to get that that are woven together, the more worried we become about people's ability to travel freely without being monitored constantly. Now, current law is red light cameras are illegal in Connecticut, correct? That's right. There needs to be a legislative uh, enabling to turn those on. And some places actually already have cameras up that they cannot use for, for that purpose because the state does not allow that yet. Do you see that coming back in some form this session? 
Probably not this year in a short election year session, but it will come back. It, I think we've helped kill that bill seven or eight times in my time at the ACLU. It, it, it is a very appealing way for municipalities to bring revenue in. Um, overwhelmingly, the states that have allowed it and the cities that have brought it on have um, gotten negative feedback where, again, these are often run by corporations who want to make money. So they make a lot of their money, for example, on right on red. And if there's the smallest move of a wheel at a red light when, before you turn red, you will be billed. He is David McGuire, executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.